one way in which uh, AI can be used here to enable target discovery is to build models that have an understanding of the regulatory language of the genome. What I mean by that is uh, think of the genome like a book, right? So if you just look at, if you just copy down the sequence of letters in a book and you don't really understand the language, uh, then if someone asks you what would happen if I change this letter over here, you wouldn't know the answer. Sure. But if you understand the language of the book and how those letters form words and the words form sentences and how those sentences relate to each other, then you would be able to immediately say that this one letter substitution doesn't make any difference, but this other one letter substitution completely changes the meaning of the sentence. Right. Right. And so that's what we can do here with AI. My name is Kashif, and this is BioRadio. A group of biologists turned bioinformaticians bring you into the world of research and development informatics by interviewing the people responsible for implementing systems and technologies to a unique and diverse set of use cases. Drug target identification is a critical and extremely complex step in the drug development process. Traditionally, drug targets are found by scouring scientific publications for insights into molecular pathways or known causative genetic variants linked to disease. The often high and expensive failure rates of treatments centers around the underlying hypothesis, the premise that a particular drug activates or inhibits a target and perturbs a given disease, which is found to be incorrect. Fundamentally, finding better targets will lead to better delivery of medicines, which are more likely to succeed in the clinic. Machine learning models trained on large amounts of multi-omic, multi-dimensional data allow researchers to differentiate between states or conditions at much greater specificity and predict disease-relevant targets. Ultimately, the challenge we face to reduce the failure rate in drug development isn't to create more drug targets, but to identify better ones. To talk about this, today we're here with Avantika Lal. Could you please introduce yourself? Sure. Thanks for inviting me on this podcast. So my name is Avantika, and I'm a senior data scientist at a startup called Incitro. Uh, we aim to use machine learning to develop new drugs for challenging diseases. And I've worked for several years in the general field of machine learning and how it can be used to improve the analysis of genomic data and the insights that we can get to help patients and develop better medicines. And so I'm very happy to be here and talk about these things that I really love to think about. Let's do a little bit of level setting. What do you think is the fundamental problem with drug discovery and the, the increased cost in the drug development process? So the fundamental problem that you're talking about, I think, is that uh, drug discovery today has a very high failure rate and a very expensive failure rate. Right? Developing a new drug can take uh, a decade and on the order of a billion dollars in investment. Right. And that, that's a huge amount of money and also a huge amount of time and energy that has been spent into that. And uh, yet, in spite of that, we see statistics like over 90% of uh, candidate drugs failing. So what's the cause for that? It's hard to say. There's probably not one cause. But uh, there has been some analysis of uh, the causes of these failures. And one study found that 40 to 50% of these failures were due to a failure in efficacy. So the drug didn't actually uh, result in better outcomes for patients. And so one possible reason for that is that we don't under fully understand the mechanisms of many uh, complex diseases. Sure. And we, don't, we, do we haven't yet found the right uh, target or the right mechanism to go after with a drug. So kind of going back to my days in a research lab, I remember literally looking at these canonical pathways 
And if I'm trying to perturb a specific gene, you look at what's upstream of that, you find the regulators and you try to find a drug that will hit that target. Um, tell me why that's not the best method of causing some sort of permutation or, or inhibition activation of a gene. So we often find that when you have a, a gene as a starting point, a gene that you know to be associated with the disease, you can look at its interacting partners, you can look at uh, information from different sources about where and when and how that gene is expressed and uh, use that to identify targets. But uh, you have to have that initial gene to start with, right? You have to have that initial hypothesis of... The causal gene. Yes, here's a causal gene. Here's a gene that I believe is involved in the pathophysiology of a disease. And modulating that gene is going to, uh, is going to lead to an effective treatment. And so uh, one, one problem is how do we identify that causal gene for every disease that we're interested in? And it doesn't have to be one causal gene. It can be a whole network that we sure. need to perturb. Yeah. So from, from a historical context, what do you think was missing from approaching target identification in a, in a more streamlined fashion? What, what are the missing components, either technology-wise or scientific research-wise? So I think one thing that has definitely changed in the last 10 years and even in the last five years is just the amount of data that we've had access to. And some of this is driven by just by the cost of genomic sequencing. Sure. Right? So We've seen the reverse yes. Moore's law. <laughs> a lot of people have seen that uh, Moore's law graph where you have the cost of sequencing a genome over time. Right. And in the last 10 years, we see this exponential decrease. Right. And so that, that means that we have a lot more uh, genomic data to work with. We have genome sequences of... Uh, millions of people today, from, including healthy people, as well as individuals who are suffering from different diseases. So that gives us much high, higher power to compare uh, healthy people with people who are suffering from a disease and understand what, uh, what the causal genes or the ca causal mechanisms of the disease could be. And aside from the amount of data, there's also the resolution of data. So in the last five years, there's really been a surge in single cell technologies, right. where we can now uh, we can now profile the function and activity of the genome at the level of single cells. So you can, uh, you can identify you know, changes in the behavior of specific cell types in the lung or liver or brain of, or, of patients with the disease. And that gives you, again, much higher power to understand the mechanisms of what is going on in these patients. So we talked about uh, the, the size of data that we have access to and the resolution of data. Uh, there's also our power to perturb biology. So uh, take, for example, CRISPR. CRISPR gives us the power to actually test hypotheses by perturbing the, the activities of genes. By turning a gene right. on so or if, off, if we, ha if we can hypothesize based on the data that we have access to that a particular gene is involved in disease, we can test that by using CRISPR to modulate its activity in a, mo in a cell or a model system and seeing what happens. Right. And we can do that at scale. D describe that scale. Uh, you're talking about multiple multiple gene edits using CRISPR, for instance, or, or other you know cloning synthetic biology tools. But what does the scale part of that? Is that multiple genes or is that multiple organisms? So here I can share a story from my PhD. Yes, please. Uh, so in my PhD, I spent 
the first two or three years trying to figure out what these, how these two genes are related to each other. And I spent at least two years just trying to make cells in which one gene was switched off and the other was switched on or both of them were switched off just so I could see what happened in different conditions. Sure. And today uh, we have CRISPR technologies that have reached such a level that we can perturb almost every gene in the human genome not just knocking them out entirely, but also tuning their expression, turning them up or down. And we can do this in a population of cells so that some cells in our population will have one gene perturbed while others will have a different gene perturbed and some will have both of the genes perturbed. And so we can study all of these different regulatory combinations. And this gives us power to screen different genes and see which gene affects a disease-like condition. We can do this at scale and generate new hypotheses that can lead to target discovery. Uh, one thing that I also want to mention here, since we are talking about developments in the last few years, is the discovery of Yamanaka factors and induced pluripotent stem cells. So this has given us the power to develop better model systems for disease. So where uh, we would use animal models or cell lines, we can now take uh, skin cells or blood cells from a patient and differentiate them into whichever cell type is most relevant to the disease. And so then we can test our genetic or chemical hypotheses in a system that is really uh, has the same genetic background as the patient and is as relevant to the disease as we can get. But all in a very controlled setting. Yes, of course. That's right. Um, so you talked about data, massive amounts of data, uh, the cost of sequencers, for instance, coming down. Uh, could you speak a bit to the the ecosystem of enabling technologies, right? Uh, you know, when I was in grad school, it was obviously all about Sanger. Now it's all about uh, next generation sequencing and, and perhaps uh, longer read technologies. Could, could you kind of tell me, could, uh, could you sort of speak to the technology advancements from like an instrumentation standpoint? What do you think are the big trends that are driving uh, driving this push towards more AI? Yeah, so if you think back to that graph with the exponentially de declining cost of uh, sequencing, the point where the graph really starts dramatically declining is with the development and commercialization of uh, NGS. Along the curve, there have been several more developments. So I don't remember now the exact timeline, but uh, one of the things in these years has been the uh, development of single cell technologies, sure. single cell DNA sequencing, RNA sequencing, multiomics, and so on, and the improvement in scale of those technologies. So I think early experiments had a very small number of cells, and today we are seeing technology improvements to the point where you can sequence a million cells in a single experiment. Uh, and also long read technologies, including Oxford Nanopore and PacBio. So we've seen continuous improvements in the accuracy of those technologies. Uh, while earlier they were, there were challenges in getting uh, accurate genome sequences sure. out of those, a quality has, dr has dramatically improved and AI has played a role in that. AI has played a role in reducing the error rate. Yes, AI, oh, has, wow. I didn't yeah, know that. AI has play, definitely <laughs> played a role in reducing the error rate. There's a paper that uh, I wrote while I was at NVIDIA along with my colleagues. And there's another paper, a deep learning model that was published around the same time by Google. And both of these use deep learning models to improve the accuracy of PacBio data. And we showed that we could correct 20 to 30% of the sequencing errors that were found in those long reads. And so AI has definitely played a role in this technology improvement and cost reduction over time. Right, and this is de novo, not, not using uh, 
an existing reference genome. This is de novo. Got it. Very interesting. I did not know that. Mm-hmm. So obviously, there's been a number of improvements on the technology side looking at, uh, you mentioned multi-omic, looking at different different uh, omic data, genomic, uh, assuming proteomic, perhaps metabolomic data, um, you know, troves of data. Uh, could you speak to how you you gather the data and then how you process it, kind of the the, the, the current state of affairs in terms of how do you create these training models? Right. So there are a lot of different data sources. So one uh, data source that many people use is uh, genetic sequences from uh, different population databases that include healthy individuals as well as people with uh, different disease conditions. You know, the a well-known example is the UK Biobank, sure. where we have genetic as well as uh, clinical and other data from 500,000 people. So uh, there are many such databases. There are many such uh, population databases around the world now. What do you do with that data? How do you how do you find the best targets in terms of drug development? So there are a lot of different ways in which this data can be used. So another data source is uh, databases of omic data, including, for example, RNA seq or chip seq or uh, chromatin accessibility. So different kinds of technologies that profile not just the sequence of the genome, but the function and activity of the genome in different contexts. So, for example, sure. different tissues of the body. Uh, in terms of how we can bring this information together, there are a lot of different uh, modeling strategies that people use. One that I find really interesting is uh, to understand the function of disease-associated variation. So I can talk a bit about that. If we look at the genetic variation in individuals with and without a disease, the way that we compare that is typically through a genome-wide association study, or GWAS. And what that basically means is that we have a group of people uh, with the disease that we are interested in and a group of healthy controls. And we look at the uh, sequences or the genetic variation that is found in all these individuals. And we identify sequence sequence variants that are more common in the disease population than in the control population. And these sequence variations in the human genome could potentially be increasing uh, people's risk of developing disease. And so they, they could give us a clue as to what genes, what mechanisms are involved in, are involved in this disease. So sometimes this interpretation can be straightforward. If we find a variant that is uh, right in the coding sequence of a gene, Sure. then we, could, we can easily hypothesize that that gene has a role in the mechanism of the disease. But it's not always straightforward. So one thing is that correlation isn't causation. Right. So just because a gene is statistically more, more prevalent in a population with the disease doesn't mean that it is causally associated with the disease. So there can be many confounding factors, including the structure of the genome. Don't have to go into that, but there can be many confounding factors. And at the same time, uh, 90% or more of these variants that we detect are, uh, in, are, not in, are not in the coding regions of genes at all. Right. They are non-coding variants. Sure. Most of the genome is regulatory. And these, so these variants might be influencing the expression of a gene in a particular context. So we don't, but we don't really have the understanding to easily decipher that, to easily be able to link those to a target gene. One way in which uh, AI can be used here to enable target discovery is to build models that have an understanding of the regulatory language of the genome. What I mean by that is uh, think of the genome like a book, right? So if you just 
look at if you just copy down the sequence of letters in a book and you don't really understand the language uh, then if someone asks you what would happen if i change this letter over here you wouldn't know the answer sure but if you understand the language of the book and how those letters form words and the words form sentences and how those sentences relate to each other then you would be able to immediately say that this one letter substitution doesn't make any difference but this other one letter substitution completely changes the meaning of the sentence right Right. And so that's what we can do here with AI. So we can train deep learning models to take the sequence of the human genome and learn to predict based on omic data how that sequence would function in different contexts. Uh, would this gene be expressed in different cell types? Can you predict at what level it would be expressed? Can you predict what proteins would bind to this DNA in different contexts? And once the model has learned to take in a dna sequence and predict how it would function once it's learned that mapping we can ask it to predict the functions of different sequence variations and so a model like this can give you hypotheses about what a disease associated variant would actually do would it increase the expression of a specific gene if it would it increase the which which cell type would it increase the expression of that gene in so you can get very specific hypotheses about a target genes that might might develop into good drug targets and for many variants it might predict that this variant would have no functional effect at all going back to an earlier comment that you made right you have a hypothesis that a particular gene is involved in a disease um have you or others approached this without that hypothesis right like let me just look at the data and see which genes are 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 causal or could be causal and kind of go about it that way as opposed to having having it hypothesis driven definitely i think that's uh, often the way in which these studies work when you start with uh, gvas for example you're not starting with uh, hypotheses about what genes you expect to see right you're comparing the case and control populations and seeing what's more common and going from there and if you find a uh, you may find a large number of variants that are statistically different between the two populations but you can then train models to test each of them uh without taking into account uh previous studies or previous literature or clinical trials associated with those genes but just looking at the data and uh deciding based on the information that's available to it what's important and what's not but there are also uh, models that take into a, that can take into account previous information and a good example of that is knowledge graphs where sure. we can take into account omic data or uh, genetic data but also so also uh, mine the literature and extract information from text from published papers clinical trials medical reports and all all kinds of different sources of information that are available to us and put all of those together to make a final prediction the, the most studied genes have the most publications and it sort of puts yes. you into a in, in into an awkward situation where you're only studying the same small set of genes yes so there are definitely biases um there are biases in the literature for sure where we have a publication bias towards positive results and for various reasons we know that a substantial fraction of biomedical re- research turns out to not be reproducible later right so uh, th- this strategy can definitely lead to biases organizations you know even looking back at your your research right like i would imagine the 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 corpus of data is quite large any sense of how many gigabytes or petabytes or terabytes of information this is yeah 
So I don't know about the scale of information that's available to in individual organizations, but in terms of biology as a whole, uh, there was a study a couple of years back that uh, hypothesized that biology would soon enter the exabyte scale. Wow. <laughs> and that compared it to the sizes of big data that we see in astronomy and uh, sources like YouTube and Twitter for imaging and text data. And right. biology was predicted to outstrip these. Any any sense of timeline? Like, is, is that... 2025. So, okay. So right quite close. Yes, right around the corner. <laughs> Very nice. Um, could you talk to a bit about technology advancements? Um, you know, any any sense of what has changed from performance or computation? Right. I, I know the, the machine learning algorithms have definitely advanced in the past five, ten years. Um, making a more sort of universal and specifically, there are several more biology specific. Uh, algorithms and, and toolkits that you can use. But can you kind of tell me what the landscape has been or, or what the current landscape is in terms of technology? So there have been a lot of advancements in the last five, 10 years, both on the software side and the hardware side. Um, as you said, there have been advancements in deep learning models in different model architectures and strategies. So I think in the last uh, five, 10 years, we've seen huge improvements in models for computer vision. We've seen architectures like ResNet, for example. And we've seen the development of transformers in, uh, in terms of language models. Sure. And in fact, all of a lot of these architectures have been adapted for use in genomics. So the, the kinds of models that I'm, I was talking about earlier that uh, analyze the sequence of the genome and combine it with omic data to understand that regulatory language and predict uh, variant effects, those models are often uh, convolutional models based on the architectures that we use for computer vision. And last year, uh, DeepMind and Calico actually released a model called Enforma. And that was based on uh, transformer architectures for the first time. So a lot of these architectures that have been uh, developed and validated and found to be improvements in other fields have uh, been drawn in and adapted and modified for genomics. And they've been, they've been shown to give very good results on biological data as well. Right. So lots of borrowing and stealing, I guess. <laughs> I, I wouldn't call it stealing. Ha, inspiration. You, lots of inspiration. There you go. Have you seen the reverse where, where genomic tools are being applied elsewhere? That's a really good question. I don't think I've come across that in my experience. It, it might happen, but... Um, if we do see that the scale of data in genomics uh, dominates other fields in the coming years, then I would definitely expect that to happen. It would be very exciting. Yeah, big contributions coming our way. Um, yeah, just to add to that, I, I've seen some flow uh, models that are that are you know they're images, they're videos at the end of the day, right? And and so there's a lot of imaging software out there, and and being able to predict if a video has a cat or not, right? I mean, yes. I'm sure you've seen those examples. <laughs> yes. So if you, one of the first uh, prominent uh, examples of deep learning in genomics was this model called Deep Variant by Google, right. which was uh, basically taking uh, next generation sequencing data and, and identifying uh, the mutations that were present in individual genomes. So identifying whether a person had an A or a C or a G at a specific position where there was some discordance in the data. And that, mo that model was actually directly based on uh, computer vision architecture. So they, they took the 
kind of architecture that you would use to you know, classify whether an image has a cat or a dog. And they represented the DNA sequence as an image and applied that model to it. Right. No, I didn't so, know that. <laughs> it all comes back to the cat videos. Uh, <laughs> kind of going back to your earlier comment, right? You mentioned typical drug or, or like an average drug takes 10 years, $1 billion. I would imagine the ROI on that, meaning you would only go after diseases um, that have a large population, right? Where, where a pharma company, for instance, would be able to make back their, recoup their, their investment. Uh, if we optimize the target identification and streamline the drug development process where it doesn't necessarily take a billion dollars, what does that do to orphan diseases or neglected diseases or rare diseases? That's definitely one of the big hopes of AI and drug discovery, that we'd be able to reduce the timeline and the cost of going through that process and reduce the rate of failures to the point where it becomes less expensive to, to take a risk. I do want to point out here, this is something that uh, the founder of Incitro, Daphne Koller, once said, and it was actually before I joined Incitro, but that it has stuck with me, that if the failure of if the failure rate of drug discovery is 95% and if we d apply ai and double the success rate we would still have a 10% success rate and a 90% failure rate right so a little bit of perspective <laughs> yes so let let's not underestimate the complexity of biology sure sure and now going back to your earlier comment around the future right where do you see this going how do you see, you know, you mentioned putting it in the hands of biologists, but uh, or people that are uh, more like biologists and less less data scientists. But where do you see this going? How do you see what's the next generation of, yeah. of target identification look like? Yeah. So we're already seeing some drugs or some targets that were identified by AI going into the clinical stage. So, for example, last year, AstraZeneca announced that um, that in collaboration with Benevolent AI, they discovered a novel target for uh, kidney disease using AI. And there have been reports from in silico medicine as well that they're uh, taking targets discovered by AI into, the, into clinical trials. So over the next year, next few years, I think that we'll start seeing results from AI. We'd start seeing more, uh, more targets identified commercially, more drugs going into the pipeline, and we'd start seeing results from those trials. So we'd get, hopefully we'll start to get an idea of whether this, how well this is actually working. And aside from that, I think one area that I'm personally very interested in is starting to get more diverse data. So working in this field, I've often felt that, you know, we are developing complicated models and getting insights from these vast data sets, as you said. But the data set that I'm working on is 92% European individuals. Right, yeah. <laughs> so I've often had this feeling that, you know, these insights that I'm deriving are not, at the end may of the day... May not be relevant to you. May not be relevant to me or to people like me. Right. And that is slowly changing. We are starting to see more diverse data sets. Uh, for example, we have the All of Us project here in the US, which aims to collect data from 1 million individuals from very diverse backgrounds. Right. So as we start getting these data sets, I hope that our models will learn to pick out different patterns, to pick out the complexities in this data set, to possibly identify treatments that are specific to different populations. Or subpopulations. Yes, right. exactly. So I hope that we'd start seeing a better understanding of how disease affects different populations differently and how we can target treatments to different groups. 
Yeah, perfect segue. We actually did a, a podcast on genetic disparities, right? And and fundamentally, the data doesn't exist in, in non-European yeah. ancestry men. Do you have any sense of in the future where other areas could be optimized, right? I mean, you, you kind of understand the, the larger drug development pipeline or, yeah. or, or um, process. Where, where else do you think um, AI could be most impactful? So that's an interesting question because at Citro we really think about how we can apply machine learning and predictive models across the entire value chain of drug discovery, from the beginning from identifying the basic mechanisms of disease, right up into developing an actual molecule and then into the clinical stage. So there are a lot of different areas throughout that process in which AI can be applied. So we've seen a lot of progress in the last few years around using AI to optimize the actual drug molecule you know, to optimize the chemical structure of a small molecule or the sequence of a protein therapeutic right. and to optimize its uh, binding efficiency, its toxicity and other properties. Uh, one area that is also very interesting is in using AI to actually generate the labels that we use for predictive modeling. So an example of this is uh, some work that was done by Google last year where they, they actually used AI uh, they trained an AI model to look at retinal images and identify predictive signals of glaucoma. And okay. they used that to label many of the patients in the UK biobank. They were able to diagnose glaucoma in patients who didn't, who didn't necessarily have an official diagnosis. So we were able, they were able to use those labels to then identify genes that were associated with glaucoma. Right. So, we can, so this is another strategy for using AI uh, in target discovery or drug discovery right, to, to generate better labels and better diagnoses that we can then use to build predictive models of disease. Right. And the little I know about this space in terms of machine learning is that the labeling of the data is one of the most critical and difficult things, right? And exactly. if it's not done properly, the results are not uh, yeah. are not going to be you know successful. So if you rely on expert labels, that's something that is very difficult to scale up. Bottleneck, there can be disagreements right. between experts. So the easier it is to generate accurate labels at scale, the better predictive models we can build. Right, right. Uh, and then you, you mentioned that there were a few drug candidates, um, drug compounds, et cetera, that, that are in the clinic. Any sense of how this is improving uh, the cost or speed of delivering drugs? The first targets and compounds developed using these strategies are now starting to go into trials. So I don't know that we can say yet whether this hope that AI will, would substantially reduce the cost and timeline of drug discovery, whether this hope is actually successful or not. But over the next five, 10 years, I hope we can start getting that data and we can start, um, we can start evaluating our success. Hopefully it looks good. Thank you for listening to BioRadio. I'd like to thank Eventika for being our guest today, talking about optimizing drug target ID through AI. I'd also like to thank the listeners. To join the conversation, visit our blog, biorad.io, and don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This podcast is an original creation of Biorad Laboratories. Biorad is a trademark of Biorad Laboratories Incorporated in certain jurisdictions. All trademarks mentioned herein are the property of their respective owner.